From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I agree wholeheartedly with what Alice Waters writes in her foreword to Tanya Holland's California Soul, Recipes from a Culinary Journey West. She says, I may never make these great dishes, but I will reread this cookbook for years to come for the stories of incredible gutsy, resourceful, intrepid Black people who not only came West to California from the South to begin new lives, but continued lives of bravery, will, creativity, and inspiration for generations following their initial arrival here and continuing to this day. Tanya Holland is the living embodiment of California soul, and I'm happy to get to spend some time with her this morning. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm great. It's so wonderful to have you. I would love it if you would tell us a bit about your own personal story, your family's personal story. Between 1916 and 1970, six million Southern African Americans migrated out of the southern states into urban centers in the north and west in two different waves. Tell us about where your relatives are from and and any memories you might have of returning to visit those who elected to stay behind. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, my maternal side of the family is from Louisiana and, um, My grandmother, I know, was born in 1916. I can't remember when my grandfather was born. He was a little bit older. And she had, oof, a bunch of siblings. (laughs) I know she had at least four sisters, and they all migrated west. She was the only one who stayed in Shreveport, Louisiana. And two of them ended up in outside of Portland in a neighborhood called um, Van Port, which was uh, African-American neighborhood. A lot of them, well, I know that Aunt Lottie and Aunt Susie like kind of left. They joined the circus, literally, um, and they made their way west. And in Van Port, um, there was a black community that was, some people were working for Kaiser, some were building ships. I know they had a, a small business called Lottie and Susie's Place, have the business card. It said they serve fried chicken dinners, barbecue, and chitlins, and they were always open. And I found that out three years ago, which is amazing. Eventually, Aunt Susie went down to the L.A. area with two other sisters, and Aunt Lottie stayed in the Portland, Oregon area. And I remember, you know, as a child, my parents moved to Rochester, New York, when my dad got a job with Kodak when I was two. But for holidays, we would either go see his family in Virginia or Louisiana and, you know, just hear all these stories and the aunts who had moved out west. And then when I was about seven or eight, we took a long road trip across country and visited those aunts and uncles in Portland, in Oakland, in LA area, probably Watts, I think it was. And, you know, whenever we got together with family, it was really all about food. And the food was what they grew up eating in Shreveport. And, you know, that's just something that I've always carried with me that that is really the key to my identity is through my food. You eventually settled in Oakland. What was the thread that your restaurant played in your bonding to the community and starting to meet people from all walks of life who you end up profiling in your new book? Well, um, it's my first restaurant 
uh, was located in the neighborhood of West Oakland. It's on the west side of Oakland, but it's actually also the name of the neighborhood. And that is where the Black Panthers were based and started the school breakfasts and um, where the, you know, the, the railroad terminated and the community of porters settled. And I just happened to move there because the real estate was less expensive. And my then uh, boyfriend was buying a condo when we moved in. And um, I realized it was an underserved community in terms of amenities and a restaurant was needed and a restaurant that reflected um, the heritage of the people, who, the predominant you know group of people that, who were there seemed fitting. And so um, I was shopping around the idea. I found some investors. I got to know my neighbors, one of whom was a city council member. And so, you know, that kind of drew me into the politics. They invited me to neighborhood meetings to talk to developers and other politicians about what was needed in the area, what I could bring to the area. You know, it was just like this first time in my life where I felt like I could make a substantial impact um, through my work that I could not have even imagined. You know, I just thought I was going to open a restaurant, be a chef who had a restaurant or a restaurant tour. But then when I realized like the difference that it makes in terms of the quality of people's life, having an amenity that's local, that also represents the local culture, that gets press and puts the city on the map and brings attention and brings money, and just how that all just, you know, snowballs. I would love to focus um, on some of the people behind the food and drink that you feature in your maker profiles. It, it's such a powerful part of the book and um, and really fascinating. Tell us about Mac McDonald. Um, he was raised in a Texas town so tiny that it didn't even have a zip code, and yet he ended up mastering Pinot Noir. Yeah. I, oh, Mac is one of my favorites. I've known Mac now for almost as long as I've been in the Bay, about 20 years. I was managing a restaurant in Berkeley when he came in and introduced me to his wines. And I describe Mac as the black Mr. Green Jeans because he is always with his pair of overalls and a straw hat. He's got this deep East Texan uh, accent. And he's so gregarious and so knowledgeable. And he produces the most beautiful award-winning Pinot Noirs. And he and his wife, Lil, are just sweethearts. And, you know, she has been behind him, supporting him with marketing and promotions. And so I always had, wherever I was, I'd try to bring his wine on the list, even though it was quite expensive. Um, At my first location, we did a wine dinner with him, which was well-received. And I featured him in my, my Brown Sugar Kitchen cookbook as well. And he deserved an encore appearance because he's really unique. He is one of the first African-American winemakers in California to win all those awards, and he's very consistent. And his winery is called Vision Cellars. And he used to also, when I, he used to host these collard green cook-offs. And I participate and I judge one year. And again, that was another way to keep us all connected to the food of our heritage. And I just want everybody to know about him because he is um, a legend. So let's talk recipes. I want to ask you about your white barbecue sauce. First of all, what is white barbecue sauce? How is it used? And then how is your version different? (laughs) You know what? I didn't grow up eating white barbecue sauce. 
But I love exploring the diaspora of, you know, African-American, Southern, and soul food. And as I'm creating recipes, I always look for different influences and how I can reinterpret them. And so, you know, traditional um, white barbecue sauce is mayonnaise-based, which is kind of crazy when you think of barbecue. Uh, but I thought it was perfect with seafood for me. So that's kind of what inspired me to create this recipe. But yours isn't completely white. You add avocado to it. Right. Well, that's... So Californian. (laughs) Yes, because I have to make it California. And, you know, with every recipe that I created in this uh, cookbook, I wanted to answer the question, what about it is Seoul and what about it is California? Because it just is the blend of the two places, you know, the South and California, what inspires me. And again, soul food is anywhere there's a group of African-Americans. And so wherever we've migrated to, you're going to find soul food, but it's usually rooted in the South. And then the soul food in California, to me, has to have the California influence. And this one, this is like a quintessential recipe, <laughs> I think, for that. Because, it, like you said, it has the white barbecue sauce, but the avocado makes it California. Which do you think of your recipes in this collection is the most emblematic of your family's history and your own California sensibilities? Well, let me think. If I had to pick a recipe that is most emblematic of my family history... It would have to be gumbo, and here I'm creating, I've, I created a recipe, gumbo zerb, with Dungeness crab and prawns. Obviously, my family was not using Dungeness crab, but again, uh, adding the California touch. But gumbo is just, you know, I'm rooted in that. Uh, my mom always made gumbo for her friends in Rochester, my aunts. Everybody makes it different, too. Everybody has their own interpretation, but... The idea is that this is our food. Like you're not finding gumbo coming from any place else in the country, but Louisiana. I love that. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thank you, Evan. Tanya Holland is a chef, restaurateur, and author. Her new cookbook is Tanya Holland's California Soul, Recipes from a Culinary Journey West. We've got a recipe for her grilled shrimp and corn with that avocado white barbecue sauce we talked about on our website. Head to kcrw.com slash good food. Coming up, Asma Khan is a culinary force, and she comes by it naturally. The London-based Chef's Table star tells us about how her mother became the most famous caterer in Calcutta. That's next. Welcome back to Good Food. All culinary stars are people. People with families and memories, people who started cooking maybe when they were young, maybe not so young, but they're people for whom cooking became an emotional language they needed to share. A lot has been written about Asma Khan, the Indian-born British chef and restaurateur who was profiled along with her London restaurant, Darjeeling Express on season six of Chef's Table. Her commitment to training immigrant women who formed the backbone of her all-female kitchen team started with her relationship to her mother. Her latest book is a salute to her, Amu. 
Hi, Asma. Hello. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, talk to us a little about your mom. For context, to give us what year she was born. She was born in, in 1943, uh, before India got independent. And she saw the country transforming. But for her, her life remained pretty traditional. She was, you know, in a very conservative family. She never went to college. She got married very young. She had uh, my sister when she was 18, and she was a grandmother at 32. Uh, pretty much how, you know, things have happened for generations in my family. Tell us a bit about your dad also. My dad, a very interesting character. He, passionate uh, reader of poetry and very Sufi in his philosophy and an engineer by training, very different from my mother, from a very different region of India, a wheat-growing region. He still finds looking at a fish eye really terrifying because that's a landlocked uh, area where he grew up. A man of very simple food taste, but very, very deeply spiritual uh, and great fun to talk to. A real character. I think my real education has been having conversations with my father. The, the images in, in this book are absolutely beautiful, not just objectively beautiful to the eye, like beautifully photographed, but they're so chosen with, with memory and emotion in mind. You talk about the jewelry box that your mother gave you when you left the house to marry, and you say that your, this latest cookbook, Amu, is like that jewelry box. How so? Actually, it was all this imagery that came out in the darkness of pandemic and lockdown. And I had this jewelry box in front of me. And it's then when I realized that we are given this very physical gift of ancestral vintage jewelry in my family. I come from a royal family. So for us, some of the jewelry is very old and very, very precious. Uh, it's given to us in this box as a goodbye gift to you as you leave the doorstep of your house. But then I realized that actually what I'm taking away is these food memories, are the aromas of my kitchen, the sound of my mother cooking and laughing, the songs that she would listen to, and all those gatherings of the clan to celebrate weddings. All those recipes are there in my book. And that box, which had the jewelry, is actually a box full of recipes. You talk a lot about the monsoon season. Why do you associate so much childhood comfort food with monsoons? You need to experience the monsoon in Bengal. The rain is relentless. But that comes after months of parched heat, where the ground is cracked up and everything is dry, bone dry. So when the rains come, the first monsoons, my father would grab us all. My mother used to be shrieking, telling her not. And he used to take us out and we used to just stand and watch the rain and get soaked through and through. And that fragrance of the earth, there's no flower, there's no perfume, there's nothing that can describe that sweet smell of the earth when it starts getting soaked. And then all the birds are dancing. And in my father's home, when it is to rain, the peacocks would come out and they used to stand out of the trees and dance. 
that kind of joy when you feel the earth taking a deep breath it's it's a real emotion so give us a dish that just brings you back to those memories i the, the pakoras are the two i mean the onion fritters the pakoras and these kind of very simple potato balls dipped in chickpea flour because also together with monsoons came lack of food in the house the bazaars closed so then you suddenly were left on this diet of whatever grains you had in the house and eggs because the person who sold the eggs the andawala would cycle through with the floods and we started off with you know having one egg each as the monsoon got worse and we got trapped into the houses we were down to half an egg each you felt like you were some huge adventure so your family had a cook a family cook what was your mother's role in the kitchen and then talk to us a bit about her catering business and how she started that she never went to college no one in the family no female in the family ever worked she was the first entrepreneur in the family she decided to catering she began this catering business in a very small way very kind of in an organic way incredible it reminds me of how i started i started in my house she started in the house and she slowly built up her business then you know she built a little outside kitchen and she expanded and she became one of the best known caterers in calcutta and what was so unique about her she would personally serve and she never left till everyone had eaten and i remember her coming back at 3 in the morning sitting on top of an empty biryani pot rat which was full of bones that she'd got for all the street dogs coming in at 3 in the morning the chaos because the dogs knew the bones were coming they were chasing all the neighbors put their lights on and she used to just jump off in her silk sari wearing her diamond vintage jewelry and she just jump off this truck and just walk into the house no one would gossip about her no one talked about her they just watched in awe for many people who have never cooked indian food at home your recipes might seem like a project even if they're quite simple what kind of advice can you give please do not get intimidated because a lot of television where you see people cooking indian food is unnecessarily complicated the good thing about ammu is the first two chapters one of them is my childhood dishes and the second one is the chapters of the dishes i first cooked when i was learning how to cook and i will actually tell you look out for this this is how you check this is what you do because this is what happened with me i learned to cook this way i didn't go to culinary school i wasn't a sous chef i didn't pick up cooking from watching master chef or anything else i literally stood in a kitchen and watched how to cook so i go through these steps and i think if you look at a recipe and read it then it's your recipe you tweak it you turn it to your taste buds to what you have in your house this recipe is no longer mine it is yours I love that in the front of the book you have all kinds of recipe suggestions depending upon what our needs might be and I have to say that my favorite category is cooking for your future in-laws. <laughs> yes, I uh, because those are really foolproof. They look spectacular but they're actually not that difficult to make. You don't need to tell them how easy it was. They're just going to think you're so smart. So so pick one and tell us about it. Well I mean there are all the pulao's the biryani's the 
all of them are actually very, very easy. And they would be, I would say, cook for your future in-laws because they look, especially the prawn biryani is, is brilliant because it's, it's just looks so spectacular. It is so, so, so easy. My kids make it. So it's, it's these kinds of dishes which are really easy. Also, all the kebab dishes, which you marinate and you cook last minute, it looks spectacular. And then all the aroma and the drama, you need all of that. When you're trying to impress people, you need bangs for your bucks. So, you know, you've got to have some theater, some drama, but it should be something that was so easy for you. So that also very important, which is why I also picked recipes in categories like this, that your kitchen doesn't look like a bombsite. <laughs> you look great. You don't look like you're sweaty and you're panting. Everything's in control and that's it. They're going to be so impressed by you. For, for those of us who, who aren't so familiar with the way that you have championed immigrant women, can you talk about um, the restaurant model that you created and why? My restaurant is, at the moment, uh, I hope this will change. Uh, the level at which, you know, uh, you know we are mid-level fine dining at that level. The only female-owned, all-female Indian restaurant in the world. There is no restaurant like this even in India. Incredibly, in every home you go to in South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, you will find the matriarch is in charge of cooking or of ordering the food and making sure everyone is fed. In every restaurant you go to, in the East or in the West, that is mid-level, you know, fine dining, expensive. They're all men who train to cook not in the kitchens of their mothers. They train to cook in culinary school. Everyone's CV is identical. They trained to be professional chefs. Patriarchy runs deep in our culture. You'd never find a boy in a kitchen. They'd always be shooed out. It was only the girls who were in the kitchen. In my culture, women eat last, girls eat least. Our food is very futile. We have this idea of hot chapati, hot rice being served to the men. The problem with having been an agrarian society, this you will see in Ireland, in Colombia, in Mexico, the women serve the men. The men do not cook the food. So this is a problem and I wanted to see if we could do it if we could be that unusual restaurant where women cooked the food of their ancestors, uncomplicated food. We didn't put edible flour and nitrogen and huff and poof on it. We didn't try to make our food look French. We didn't try to make anything look different. We served the simple food of the women who are in their graves as our salam and our salute to the women who never were celebrated. This is a battle cry. This is not a restaurant. This is a political movement. We're trying to explain the narrative of women and their roles in being the custodian of recipes, of nourishing generations of people. I have three grandmothers now working. They fed women, they have life experience. They don't have a certificate to show that they're chefs. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. That was Asma Khan, chef and proprietor of the Darjeeling Express restaurant in London. Her new cookbook is Amu, Indian Home Cooking to Nourish Your Soul. Want to impress your in-laws? We've got a recipe for her low-effort, 
High Reward Prawn Biryani on our site. Go to kcrw.com slash goodfood. In 2018, Mumbai-based author and food show host Sonal Ved published an award-winning cookbook filled with 500 recipes for regional Indian dishes. When she wanted to go deeper and untangle the roots of Indian cuisine, she decided to focus on one specific dish, the samosa, the savory triangular pastry that's often filled with spiced potatoes and vegetables. The result was Whose Samosa Is It Anyway? An Exploration of Geography, Culture, History, and Trade. Hi, Sonal. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. As you began documenting the history of Indian food, you had tons of questions. Where, where did you start? It's such an ambitious project. So, so when I started doing research on Whose Samosa Is It Anyway? I began... Uh, in the Indus Valley. So even if you go to an Indian museum today, this is where they start uh, history from. They start from the Harappan or the Indus Valley civilization. And then you move on uh, to various uh, other stages of Indian history. And that was also my research process. I followed that route. I started about 4,000 years ago in the Harappan Valley. And then I moved on from there. So you talk about how Indian cuisine is 4,000 years old and didn't begin with trade routes or war, but with human survival. How was the food of the Indus civilization similar or different to what came later? And then as you researched, how far back did you begin to see ingredients or tools that you recognized? You know, funnily... uh I, I, you know, I just came back from an Indian museum in the state of Bihar and I saw certain equipments that the early Indians used. Like there is something called a lota, which is like a curvy pot. Um, it is literally something that Indians use even today. So like a design which was around 4,000 years old is still as relevant. So the first definitive chapter of Indian cuisine for me began in the Harappan Valley. You know, I made an interesting observation here at least I think it's interesting, is that the Harappans ate like a cross-fitting millennial. So there was a healthy dose of Indian superfood. There was barley. There was an ingredient called amla or the Indian gooseberry. They ate millets. They ate honey. They ate curd. They ate all kinds of plants and meats. And what about some other flavor notes like amchur, the sour flavor, or or saffron, or or jaggery? Um, did you start to see some of these way back? Were they uh, able to identify and trace those? No, you know, back then it was not as exotic as, you know, we would have liked. In 2016, in June 2016, I actually read this report or this story done by BBC. And it was conducted by two archaeologists. One is Anurima Kashyap and another one is Steve Weber. So when these archaeologists were finding cues to what was eaten, they conducted a starch analysis. And starch analysis is an easy way to tell, you know, because you can see from the molecules of these old utensils, tools, as to what was being eaten or cooked during that time. They conducted this analysis in an area called Farmana, which is southeast of the largest Harappan city of Rakhangiri. And they pieced together a little bit, of something you can say was like a curry. Um, and what they found is strains of ingredients like eggplant, turmeric, ginger, 
and then together with all these ingredients they came up with something called a proto curry and this could maybe be the first curry that they ate on the indian subcontinent over 4000 years ago so all these exotic flavors like the spices and the saffron all came in much much later Yeah, it's so interesting because for us, it's almost impossible to imagine Indian food without spice. Um, at what point did it begin to arrive? Uh, pepper, ginger, turmeric, cardamom are indigenously Indian. And then there are others like cinnamon that came via Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. And from there, it traveled westward. Interestingly, there's another study that indicates that cinnamon traveled with the Moorish merchants to Indonesia and then East Africa. And from there, it went to Europe by the local merchants. Similarly, cloves and nutmeg were native to Banda Islands in Indonesia. And from there, they traveled to Europe and became a part of cuisine there. Interestingly, cinnamon is also mentioned in the Old Testament. Like it is one of the oldest scriptures in the world, and even that mentions cinnamon. So, of course, you as Indians, you cannot claim the origin of cinnamon because it was al- already being spoken about in the Old Testaments. Um, but it took decades for Europeans to get easy access to these spices. It was those trade routes that attracted them to India eventually. And and what about the rest of some other parts of the cuisine, not necessarily spice focused? Um, what what part of the world had a had an influence on Indian cuisine? Definitely the Mughals. Uh, the Mughals had a massive influence. They ruled the country for a very long period of time, um, which is why we learned a lot of finer nuances. Uh, food was slightly more rustic. uh and it got a lot more refined when the mughal sultanate came to india uh we learned how to make the persians the mughals they taught us how to make a lot of things like common things which are so common in indian cuisine right now like falooda jalebi gulab jamun the samosas um it was the central asians who taught us how to make these things and therefore they added a lot to the indian cuisine's portfolio So you just mentioned the word samosa. What can you tell us about that delicious crunchy triangle and its origins without giving too much away? I can tell you one thing that they were pyramid shaped uh, pastries uh, and samosa means the shape of a pyramid. That's all I can tell you for now. <laughs> Are, were they back in time were were potatoes a part of them or was something else were they filled with something else? No, not at all. If potatoes were not a part of it at all. In fact, you know, when I launched the book, we did we actually got one of the first recipes of samosas, which was in a book called Nimmatnama, and uh, that recipe book had ingredients like a uh, musk, which is I think found uh, inside a deer. So they had musk, they had camphor, they had uh, meat. deer meat perhaps uh, it's hard to tell exactly what because a lot of it gets lost in translation but uh, the recipe was nothing like what it is now now you use potatoes and peas and that's more like the punjabi version of the indian samosa it is nothing like the original samosa samosa thank you so much sonal it's a really fascinating book thank you for taking the time to join us today thank you very much for having me That's cookbook author and food show host Sonal Ved. She's also the group digital editor for Harper's Bazaar India, Cosmopolitan India, and Brides Today India. For a link to her book, Whose Samosa Is It Anyway? Head to our website, kcrw.com/goodfood. slash 
In a minute, why a successful beloved restaurateur in Chinatown decided it was time for a reboot. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. In 2021, Tejal Rao of the New York Times wrote that Chinatown was the most exciting place to eat in Los Angeles. Her piece starts by describing the zong, the sticky rice and pork wrapped in banana leaves made by Chef Johnny Lee of Pearl River Deli. There have been weeks when it feels like my entire Instagram feed is made up of images from Pearl River Deli. Los Angeles Times critic Bill Addison called the restaurant creatively vital. Yet despite the glowing reviews and accolades, Johnny recently announced that he'll be shutting down at the end of February to take some time to reset and reopen with a model that is more financially sustainable. He shares his story on this week's In the Weeds. Hello, my name is Johnny Lee. I am the chef and owner of Pearl River Deli. Pearl River Deli is a fast, casual Chinese restaurant that heavily leans on regional Cantonese cooking, but also incorporates a lot of other cooking of the Chinese diaspora around the world. And the name itself is a reference to the region of China that I was born and where my family is from, called the Pearl River Delta. So I was born in China, but my family immigrated with me when I was only one years old. So I have mostly been raised in the United States and pretty much most of my time has been here in Los Angeles. Some of the dishes that we serve at the restaurant are definitely inspired by the food I ate growing up. It seems very simple, but we do a, like a, a blanched plate of uh, yu choy with some oyster sauce. In my mind, it's really nothing that complicated or special, but it's just something that is very reflective of just simple Cantonese home cooking. We take vegetables and we try not to do too much to them or season them too heavily to let the flavor of the vegetable come through. My mother does help with certain things in terms of, for example, the uh, rice uh, dumplings, the jung. She actually makes those and we sell them at the restaurant. I felt it was important to open in Faris Plaza because there was such a long history that it has in Chinatown, as well as such a long history that my family has had with the building and the surrounding neighborhood. I remember growing up and walking through the plaza while my mother would shop at the former um, Wing Hop Fung, you know, buying her weird dried herbs and whatever ingredients she would get. And I would walk around the plaza, and I remember being very vibrant. All the stalls were full, all the restaurants were, and businesses were open. There was a lot of life, a lot of kids running around. So there was a part of me that definitely romanticized with the idea of maybe helping to bring some of that back. So I first opened Pervert Deli, maybe it was the third week of February. It was pretty much right before COVID started becoming a serious issue. It was the last time that we actually had the Lunar New Year Parade. So that was three years ago. And considering the space itself was never really that big and didn't really have room for indoor dining, we were pretty much planning for it to be a mostly takeout operation from the beginning. So as the pandemic started subsiding and things, I guess, for 
uh, lack of a better term, maybe we started return to normal. We did notice that there was a much more higher demand for indoor dining, and we felt like people weren't interested in getting as much takeout anymore. You know, nobody wanted to eat in their cars anymore. And at the time, we also felt like we were always running out of space in our in the Far East Plaza space. And that was when we were made aware that um, the space down the street on Hill Street became available in the building uh, that's um, in Central Plaza. I think the move definitely created a big shift in our our brand. We did bring on a pastry chef named Laura Hong, and we're trying to do like a kind of like a hybrid like bakery model with a fast casual indoor dining. Of course, there were some unexpected challenges as with any re- restaurant space that you're not familiar with. Namely, like parking was a little bit different the way it worked on this side of town, even though it's two blocks away. It felt like customers were not as aware of like what was going on on social media on, on restaurants anymore. I think before, during the pandemic, people were on their phones all the time and they would constantly check restaurant Instagram to see what was happening up to date. But I think once we return to this normalcy. I felt like a lot of customer behavior just shifted back to the way it was pre-pandemic and people would just walk in and expect restaurants to have certain things all the time, which made it challenging to meet those expectations of the customers when we were always trying to experiment with like new dishes and see what worked and didn't work. And sometimes people didn't appreciate, I guess, the um, randomness sometimes it created for them. So the reason we're going to shut down this version of the restaurant is because despite COVID seemingly to have subsided and things have gone back to normal, there's a lot of things that we couldn't have predicted in in terms of inflation, uh, food costs rising, and seems like it's not going down anytime soon. I mean, we try to pay our staff a pretty fair wage. We try to be competitive, but it definitely comes at a cost to us. And it's very difficult to keep raising our prices to a point where I feel like where they, where they should be. But then we also worry that customers might not have an appetite for the pricing of where we really have to be in order to make this sustainable. Even though we've been quite busy, when we look at the numbers, it's it just shows that we're barely squeaking by in terms of paying our bills and like having a little extra in the bank. So in the long run, this really wasn't sustainable, especially considering the fact that I wasn't really paying to myself since we relocated the restaurant. Unfortunately, what's going to have to happen is that we're going to have to reduce our staff and we're going to have to probably move to a more higher price concept because I just feel like in order to escape like inflation, we just have to be able to charge more for food, which means that we might have to become less casual. I think for anyone that's coming, um, especially if they're coming for the first time, I definitely think you should come and get a pork chop bun. That's one of our signature items. Laura makes an amazing pineapple bun in-house that has a really nice crackly sugar crust on top and is really like soft and fluffy inside. Paired with uh, a fried pork chop and 
a tomato sauce that we call sofrito, inspired by the uh, Portuguese influence of Macau. That's chef and owner Johnny Lee of Pearl River Deli. Visit him and his team at his Hill Street location in Chinatown before they temporarily close at the end of February. I've had the great pleasure of speaking with Chef Jacques Pepin many times over the past two decades about a variety of subjects. His groundbreaking work in New York in the 1970s, his relationship with Julia Child, his childhood. But I have to say, I can't remember ever looking forward so much to a conversation about chickens with anyone. Art of the Chicken brings together Pepin's paintings, stories, and recipes of the humble bird. Hi, Jacques. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm sorry you're a bit under the weather. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Your new book, Art of the Chicken, is amazing. It's, It's a book filled with so much joy, which I think we all need now. How long have you been painting images of chickens? Well, over 50 years, you know, we do, uh, at my house, I was married for four, 54 years. And uh, when people came for dinner uh, and, and other special occasions, we already wrote the menu down and people wrote funny things on the other page. And sometimes we put the label of the wine, sometimes the music we play. So I have 12 books for over 50 years of remembrance like this. When I realized that I was illustrating those menus, and very often I illustrated with chicken or head of chickens, but uh, it's been part of my life for a long time. And um, while I was talking about those menus that we do, Claudine, my daughter, who is in her mid fifties, uh, a few couple of months ago, she came. She said, "What did I eat for my third birthday?" So we looked. <laughs> we found- we find it in the book, and she actually draws some little chickens. <laughs> That's adorable. And you made it. You made a decision in this book, um, which also includes recipes. But the recipes are narrated. It reflects the paintings, I think, so much. Can you talk a bit about narrative recipes in a world where consumers just seem to always want more recipes? Yes, it's interesting because, you know, I have 31 cookbooks. So I wanted to do a book of uh, drawing and panning of, of chicken uh, without even any text or whatever. And my, my publisher at some point said, yes, great, we'll have it. When we get into the idea, so okay, well, we need recipe with that. I said, well, wait a minute, I don't want to do recipe. You know, so I finally uh, decided, okay, I will tell you a story about chicken and egg. I have another book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called uh, The Apprentice, which is a, a food memoir that I did of course. For 20 years ago or so. And that's the same idea that I said I will talk about. Uh, and then at the same time, narrating recipe, some of them are approachable, I'm sure. I explained how my mother would do a chicken with cream sauce, and some of the other are not uh, approachable, you know, I mean, the chicken in a, in a pig's bladder with truffle under the skin. I don't think people are going to do that at home. <laughs> you know? But uh, this is the way eventually it worked out into uh, 
a book which is not a cookbook and not an art book, and I didn't think whether that would work or not, and it seemed that it's working pretty well. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised and, and happy about it. <laughs> Could you share with us the story of the childhood excursion you had with your pals that ended up in a chicken cooking experience? Oh boy, yes, that's the, <laughs> that was the, during the war in France. I mean, uh, so I'm turning 87, so there it was uh, at least 80 years ago. We were in the country near Bourg-en-Bresse, where I was born with my brother, who was a year and a half older, and uh, a couple of other kids, probably a bit older, like 12, 14, whatever. And along a river, we go, and all of a sudden, one of the, the kids spotted a, a chicken. Uh, going around from a farm nearby because all the farm usually there are free-range chicken. So we all run after the chicken and eventually someone dive and grab the chicken and, uh, uh, you know, break his neck too. And we decided to cook it, or they probably more than I did. Uh, so they take clay mud uh, along the river and just uh, put it right on the chicken to form a, a big ball with the feather on with the... the the gut in and so forth. And then they did a fire and they put that block of clay into the fire for a couple of hours or, or more and eventually take it out and break it with stone and pull it apart and the, the, the feather as well as the skin glued to the clay and the meat uh, appeared and we ate the meat. I'm sure it wasn't uh, in par with a three-star restaurant, but we, <laughs> we ate it. And I have a friend of mine who does the same thing with dough. You know, he put the dough around a chicken and roast it. But of course, his chicken is plucked and eviscerated. But um, a bit of the same idea, I've done that too. Um, could you tell us about the ultimate meal class that you taught in Boston? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to do a class there that I called the, the ultimate meal of the and it was a roast chicken, a boiled potato, and a salad. And uh, so I would have a basket, and I have about 15 students. So I'll do a demonstration for them for an hour, properly roasting the chicken on its side, basting it too. And after I show, um, you know, a Boston lettuce, how to wash it properly and drain it without bruising it, right? Doing a, a vinaigrette with a bit of the chicken fat uh, and some olive oil and so forth and a boiled potato, which is drained and placed back on the stove to dry out and finish with butter, and a little bit of the chicken fat too. So that was kind of the perfect meal of a very simple thing. And uh, so the student would take a basket with the same ingredient and go and cook it. And I always tell them, I know that some of you are going to want to blow my mind and make it different, but please just follow your guts and cook properly, according to what you saw me do, because what you don't realize is that you are different. I know that today I have 15 of you, 15 chicken. I'm going to have three chicken probably overcooked, a couple undercooked, some cold, some warm, whatever. But one way or the other, I'm going to have 15 different chicken because there is no way you can be exactly like the person next to you. So uh, don't try to, uh, to be different. Just follow your guts because you cannot escape yourself anyway. So you are different than the person next to you. And that's true. You know, I say that to young cook all the time. Well, Jacques, thank you so much. I mean, talking to you is always such a pleasure for me. And 
I'm going to enjoy this book for a long, long, long time. (laughs) Thank you very much. That was culinary giant Jacques Pepin, who is also a serious painter. I cannot recommend enough that you spend time with his chickens as a way of bringing more joy into your life. The Art of the Chicken is the celebrated chef's latest book. It's the Market Report next when Good Food Continues. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's finish off today's show at the Farmer's Market, where Jillian Ferguson joins us with her weekly report. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. Nearly two years ago, Brian Borneman and his partner, Lena Colhan, transformed a tiny storefront on Main Street in Santa Monica into Crudo Anudo, a destination for sustainable seafood. And just to give you a sense of how small Crudo Anudo is, there isn't even room for a dishwasher in the kitchen. So I've been very happy to learn that Brian is going to spread his wings with a new project called Isla. Hi, Brian. Hi, how's it going? Good, it's great to see you here. So tell us a little bit about Isla. What is it and where is it? Yeah, so right now Isla is a pop-up. We're partnering with Lunetta on Sundays and Tallulah's on Mondays and then we have two more weeks um, of pop-ups at those locations and then we'll probably announce an east side thing very soon for March, which we're very excited about. But Isla is the natural extension of Crudo and Nudo plus fire. So we're progressing that kind of like coastal um, Mediterranean meets L.A. palette uh, expression of flavors that we love. And this time I'm pulling inspiration from Spanish islands, but still, you know, the palette of Los Angeles, instead of, you know, everything being uh, raw the way we do at Crudo, we are now going to have everything pushed over wood fire. It allows us to use like uh, local octopus or uh, black cod or sheep's head, stuff that we couldn't serve just raw sashimi style. And then also gets, uh, you know, gives us a chance to use some ingredients in two different applications. So, you know, this week we're really excited to like see snap peas and pea tendrils back in the market. And this will give us a chance to incorporate snap peas in our halibut crudo this year, as well as our mussel dish. And then uh, in a different application, like over fire at Isla. All right. So let's talk through all those applications. Let's start with the raw application of Mm -hmm. snap peas. How do you like to use them at crudo and nudo? Well, you know, L.A. and California doesn't really like... Uh, follow the traditional four seasons people want it to but it, like we'll t- you know it's more about these little microclimates and I- individual micro seasons but the beginning of pea season you know which is now for us is just the most exciting time in the market for me because you get all of these like you get the start of the, all these heady aromatic green vegetables you know peas pea tendrils asparagus artichokes like leeks like green garlic early in the season, you get to use them like raw really well, you know, as we get later into, you know, May, April, peas can get like a little more woody, a little more like you got to like move more into cooking those same vegetables. But right now it's just like, let's just take them, slice them, um, use the uh, pea trim in our halibut fumé, then just lightly julienne them and put them over the raw halibut and just like enjoy the beauty of that like crisp, fresh, heady aroma just as they are. And remind us what a fumé is. Oh, yeah. Uh, we make, like, a, essentially a dashi, right? Like a halibut bones we use, local seaweed. And right now, starting today, we're going to add in the pea trim, like the pickings from when we clean the peas. So you'll get the halibut, the local seaweed, and the pea flavor all combined. And then we chill that and pour that over the sliced uh, halibut sashimi. So you're, like, seasoning the halibut with more of itself. Amazing. And what about when it comes to live fire? What do you do with a snap piece then? Yeah, so I love just a simple blistered snap pea, but we have 
partnered with our friends at Satel Sake. They, they do such a good job of like making kojis and sakes and amazakes. And so Troy, the sake maker, is just a master of koji. He just like really geeks out. And he recently shared this yellow uh, koji with us, something usually made uh, for starting amazake instead of, say, miso or soy sauce. And so it's got a lot more like citric acid flavor. It's like not as like umami and sweet and rich. It's more like citric acid and like bright um, and sparkly. And so that, we marinate the snappies in that for two hours, just on skewers, and then just grill over really hot mesquite charcoal, top with like a, a fresh mint and roasted garlic salsa and a little chili oil, and they're phenomenal. Wow. I can't wait to try it. Thank you. Thank you. That was Brian Borneman together with Lena Colhan. He is the co-owner of Crudo and Nudo. If you want to check out Isla, their new pop-up, head to Crudo and Nudo's website and find yourself a reservation. Abby Cass is one of the farmers who's bringing snap peas to the market this time of year. She works with McGrath Family Farms up in Camarillo. Hi, Abby. Hi, how you doing? I'm great. So as Brian was just saying, snap peas are sort of one of the first markers of spring, believe it or not, here in February in Southern California. Tell us what makes a great snap pea. They are crispy and sweet and they burst in your mouth. To get that, you need the right climate. So the biggest predictor of whether your snap peas will be good, and our sugar snap peas, although they're already sweet, to get them extra sweet, is you actually want a frost. If you get a frost, then the sugars concentrate in the fruits, and that will give you the sweetest peas. Well, that makes sense why this is the peak season for snap peas here in Southern California. We are coming out of the cold weather, entering what we might call spring. <laughs> Tell us about what's going on at the farm right now. How many snap peas do you have in the ground? Uh, we have uh, quite a few in at the moment. We actually are doing snap peas and then we do English shelling peas as well. So our English shelling peas will come later in the season, but the sugar snaps are already up. And we've also had the pea tendrils for about a month. Okay. And what is a pea tendril? Is it just the leaves that are shooting off the pea plant? Yeah, it's the leader of the, if you think of a pea plant, it's the top part that will climb. So the tendril is the top part of the plant and we go and we harvest maybe six inches down, a few inches to get the tendril. And what that does is it stops the production of peas, but it will send out more tendrils. Then they'll put on more flowers, and those flowers will then become more peas. So the English shelling pea is the main tendril that we do, but we have a new one that we grow specifically for the young shoots, and that one is a much smaller leaf. It's much thinner, and it's uh, much better eaten raw. You would use that for garnish or salads. It doesn't need to be cooked, and the bigger, bulkier English pea tendril, which is the main one we do, it can handle heat mm -hmm. and is much more palatable if you give it a little bit of heat just to soften the stalk. And the flowering of the English peas, we should begin flowering in about the next month. And you can eat the flowers, right? Yes. So a uh, little community advisory... <laughs> You must only eat English shelling pea, sugar snap, or any edible pea flower. We have sweet peas, which are incredibly similar, 
but they are poisonous. That sounds very confusing. It is. So um, anytime you're buying pea shoots or pea flowers, make sure you always ask. Good to know. Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you. That was Abby Cash. She's one of the farmers with McGrath Family Farms up in Camarillo. They just started bringing their sugar snap peas and their pea tendrils to the Wednesday Santa Monica, the Thursday South Pass, and the Sunday Hollywood Farmers Markets. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. Of course, you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts on Stitcher or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Valentine's Day is 10 days away. In lieu of flowers this year, might I suggest radicchio? It's pink. It's beautiful. It goes great with anchovies. If your partner looks at you funny, just blame it on me. Be well, everyone. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food. <laughs>